ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Tuesday the 9th of January. I'm Nick Grimm, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Today, roads cut and dramatic rescues from rising river waters. We bring you the latest from the flood zone in central Victoria. Yet another COVID wave underway. Why experts are describing a double hump surge. And shoot for the moon, the Australian artists whose work will be immortalised in a lunar capsule. It's just unbelievable. It's just an incredible story to see that there's someone out there who's putting together this initiative. First new data is today confirming what tenants around the country already know only too well, with the cost of renting a home continuing to surge by double-digit figures. Nationally, capital city rents soared last year by more than 13%, well above inflation. Renters in Sydney, Melbourne and Perth are filling it most in the hip pocket as population growth continues to ramp up the pressure on an already tight housing market. Alexandra Humphreys reports. For Gippsland renter Jason, regular rent increases are putting a strain on his finances. It's gone up two or three times. Like, they've not been massive increases, but, you know, when you're talking between sort of $20 and $30 more a week, you know, that soon adds up over the months. Jason has lived in his home for four years. He's worried another increase is coming in the next few months. That wouldn't sort of overly surprise me. Um, So, again, that just adds that little bit of extra pressure. Jason's story isn't uncommon. New data from PropTrack finds the median advertised rent nationally was $580 in December, $60 a week higher than a year earlier. Nationally, capital city rents were up more than 13%. In regional areas, prices were up by more than 4%. PropTrack senior economist Angus Moore says that's an incredibly strong rate of growth. A benchmark here is rents growing more in line with inflation, so sort of 2 to 3%. We are way above that at the moment. It is substantially faster than what we would consider kind of a, a more normal pace of inflation or of rent growth. And if you're renting a unit in a capital city, prices rose by 18%. Part of the reason for that is that we actually saw rents for units in, in particularly Sydney and Melbourne fall in, in 2020 and 2021. So there's been a bit of a catch-up going on there. Now, rents for units are, are well above where they were pre-pandemic. We've, we've more than caught up, but, but part of the story is catching up for those falls. Saul Leslake is an independent economist. Well, the single most important factor has been the surge in population growth from barely more than... 0.1 of a percent in the second half of 2021 to 2.4% over the year to June 2023. That's the fastest population growth in 50 years. And behind that, of course, is the surge in migration after our international borders opened at the beginning of 2022. So this massive surge in population growth has created an enormous increase in the demand for rental accommodation, which gives Even limited supply of rental accommodation has inevitably resulted in a surge in rents. The story isn't the same across the country. Perth saw the biggest increase in rents over the year, up by 20%. That was followed by Melbourne at 18% and Sydney at almost 17%. 
Hobart was the only capital to see a fall in rental prices, down almost 5%. Saul Leslake argues much of that can be explained by population growth too. WA's population growth doubled in the space of a year to the fastest level since the peak of the mining boom in about 2011-2012. By contrast, Tasmania's population growth, which had exceeded 2% in 2018 and was still growing by more than 1% in 2021, has slowed to just 0.3% of a percent over the year to the June quarter of 2023. So that explains why Hobart has been something of an outlier. There is another Another factor at play though, he says, decades of underinvestment in affordable housing. The underinvestment has been going on for so long that it's going to take a decade or more for the supply of housing to, uh, of affordable rental housing in particular, to rise to levels that meet the underlying demand for it. Is there any relief, do you think, on the horizon for 2024 in terms of the cost of rent? There is a little bit in the sense that the latest available information we have on arrivals and departures suggests that the surge in the number of students and temporary workers coming to Australia peaked around October, November last year and has begun to decline. I think the most that can be hoped for is that rents rise at a slower rate and I think a meaningfully slower rate in 2024 than they have done over the past two years. Independent economist Saul Eslake there. Alexandra Humphreys with that report. A big surge in the number of Australians reporting problems with banking scams and other account problems is overwhelming financial watchdogs. Over the past 12 months, annual complaints have almost doubled over the previous year and the caseload is putting pressure on the processing capabilities of the Australian Financial Complaints Authority. Elizabeth Cramsey reports. As our reliance on the digital world grows, so too does the risk of scams. In 2023, the Australian Financial Complaints Authority, or AFCA, received more than 100,000 complaints, the highest number in its five years of operation. Close to 9,000 of those related to scams, roughly double from the previous year. Justin Untersteiner is the Chief Operating Officer. Complaints about firms' handling of scams um, is a really huge concern to us and we're hoping that in 2024 the initiatives that have been announced by the government and industry will finally start to disrupt this sophisticated crime. The sheer volume of complaints means for some consumers waiting periods are growing. The increase has just been enormous and that does put pressure on any business and timeframes. In saying that, we've responded very quickly, we've grown the business, we've got more people and we're doing everything we can to make sure we can support those consumers that come to us. When consumers fall victim to scams, they're encouraged to go to the complaints department of their bank or financial institution first. If that's unsuccessful, the next recommended port of call is to AFCA. What we do is we work between the consumer and the, the bank, for instance, to try and resolve the issue through informal means and most of our complaints are resolved through that mechanism. If we can't resolve the complaint through informal mechanisms, we can issue a binding determination. Um, and um, if that's accepted by the consumer, the bank, for instance, must pay it. And just to give you an idea, in our five years of operations, we've now awarded over 1.3 
billion dollars in compensations to consumers. And that's money they wouldn't have otherwise received unless they'd come to us. So what are the government-led initiatives to deter bank scammers? Mr Untersteiner says they fall into two areas, the first of which is a code of practice. At the moment, we have a really uh, a really patchy regulatory framework when it comes to scams, and it means there are low protections for consumers. The code of practice will really change that. The second is a national anti-scam centre, and that is a coordinated approach across regulators, uh, uh, across governments, to try and disrupt scams. On the industry side, just recently, the major banks and the customer-owned banks announced um, the, the Scam Safe Accord, which is a range of initiatives that um, all banks will roll out. Consumers might think some of those initiatives are already in use. One which we think is really important is mandatory confirmation of payee. And what that really means in practice is when you make a payment through your online banking, if the bank account name and number doesn't match, you'll get an alert. Now, most consumers probably thought that that was already happening, but it hasn't. And in fact, only two banks have technology um, that give you that alert. But in the future, all banks will roll that out. There'll be other initiatives too, such as um, um, greater checks for opening accounts um, and also slowing down some transactions that might look risky. Stephanie Tonkin is from the Consumer Action Law Centre. What we need to see is more resolution earlier and even banks investing in their systems to prevent scams from reaching customers in the first place. She says banks continually having to reimburse their customers who've been scammed is providing an incentive for them to do more to prevent the scams from happening in the first place. So that their customers are prevented from losing money to the scams. Um, And we're seeing growing complexity and sophistication in scams that makes it near impossible for consumers to detect. So really, industry needs to be on the hook to be reimbursing their customers when they are scammed. A spokesperson for the Australian Banking Association says major expansion of intelligence sharing is underway, with all banks acting on scams intelligence from the Australian Financial Crimes Exchange by mid-2024. Elizabeth Cramsey. Vulnerable and older Australians are being urged to get booster vaccinations as the number of COVID-19 cases creeps up again. A new fast-moving variant known as JN1 has triggered a surge of the disease in New South Wales and Victoria. So far, it's not making people severely ill, but the number of cases is expected to keep growing, as Stephanie Smile reports. If you or your friends or family have COVID right now, you're not alone. Cases are on the rise, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria, with the highest number of patients with COVID-19 in Victorian hospitals in more than six months. It's the second surge of the disease in a short period in Victoria, and authorities are blaming the JN1 variant, an offshoot of Omicron. James Trower from Monash University's School of Public Health and Preventive Medicine explains the good news is that it's not making most people very sick so far. There's no evidence at all to say that it makes people more seriously ill or that it's more likely to do that than any of the previous Omicron strains that we've seen. And in fact, if anything, maybe slightly the other way in that we have high rates of wastewater detection in Victoria now and yet we don't have hospitalisations 
going way above what we've seen with the previous waves. How bad could this get in terms of case numbers? I think the hospitalisations may go up a little bit further and there'll probably be a peak in deaths over the next few weeks due to JN1, um, but I would not expect it to be any bigger than what we've seen with each of the previous sort of four or five waves since Omicron arose. Some experts are saying it's unlikely the figures reflect how many people are really sick with COVID and it's more likely that people are presenting to hospital with another issue than testing positive. What's your take on that? Yes, it may be as big or bigger than some of the previous ones that we've seen over the course of the last 12 months or so, but it's not causing a huge amount of severe disease and we, we don't need to be any more worried than we were previously. But he's still urging vulnerable and older Australians to get a booster if it's been more than six months since their last one and they haven't had COVID-19 in that time either. I would really uh, strongly encourage everybody who's eligible, which is particularly the elderly, if you haven't been vaccinated in the last six months and if you are eligible and if you haven't had this XBB vaccine, it's a really good idea to go and get vaccinated now. Deakin University's Chair in Epidemiology, Catherine Bennett, is also urging people to get up to date with their jabs. She's been appointed by the federal government to help conduct an inquiry into Australia's response to the COVID pandemic. And she says the risk of infections could stay high for the next few weeks. While we're still in summer, and that gives us some advantages, we've also had some pretty terrible weather across the eastern states. And so um, when you do have people indoors, spending more time indoors, that also adds to the risk, along with the fact that we're, we're in this social season and people are mixing more as well. Are vaccination rates where they should be to tackle this sort of wave? People who are 75 and older or living with comorbidity or a compromised immune system really should be looking at getting a booster now because the case numbers are still on the rise. If they haven't had an infection or a booster in the last six months, they are eligible for another dose and that could just make the difference in getting them safely through these next few weeks as we see this latest surge in infections peak. Deakin University epidemiologist Professor Catherine Bennett. Stephanie Smile reporting. On ABC Radio, across Australia, streaming online and on the ABC Listen app. This is The World Today. Thanks for joining us. Emergency warnings are in place for parts of Seymour and Rochester in central Victoria, where floods have now reached their peak. Hundreds of people have been evacuated over the past 48 hours, with many now returning to assess the damage to their homes. Bridget Fitzgerald reports. It was just after 3am yesterday when Rhiannon Drake realised her house was full of water. I had a call from the CFA at quarter past three asking how I was going. So I thought, oh, I might actually have to answer that one and sat up and put my feet in calf deep water. <laughs> oh my and gosh. That's, and that's when we kind of knew that, oh, well, this is what's happening now. Rhiannon Drake and her husband Daniel live in a small town called Goonong in northern central Victoria, about 160 k's north of Melbourne. I was just so shocked, but I, was, I just turned on a light, thankfully, um, the lights were still on. All the power points and everything below the waterline had, had been tripped, so that was that, the house was safe. Um, we were fortunate to have the lights, so as soon as I turned the lights on and saw all the brown mucky water went through the house, um, started yelling from my husband. And so <laughs> it was kind of just 
Complete and utter shock. They were evacuated by water police a couple of hours later. While they had prepared for some flooding with plastic and sandbags at entrances, they were completely caught off guard by the record-breaking rain and how quickly the house became submerged. We are not near any um, major dams, rivers, lakeways, anything like that. It was purely just because of the amount of rain that we had. Others were luckier, this time at least. Uh, relief because, quite honestly, if it had have come inside, that would have been the end. Sam Vecchio owns a restaurant in Seymour, about 100 k's north of Melbourne. The restaurant was hit hard by floods in October 2022, and he's only just got back on his feet. He nervously watched the waters rising for hours yesterday, but says his business has managed to avoid another flood. So then this morning, I've been watching monitoring the water levels and the the level has been dropping. It, it didn't rise. I think the highest it got to was seven metres, okay? But the level has dropped overnight. So I've arrived here this morning at six o'clock and I don't have a drop of water out the front of the restaurant, apart from a little bit in the car park, but uh, nothing has come inside. All I can say is thank Christ that that's happened. After an anxious wait in Rochester, floodwaters have peaked lower than expected this morning. It's welcome news for the community that was devastated by flooding in 2022. Lee Wilson is the chair of the Community Recovery Committee in Rochester and a former mayor of Campaspe. We still won't be aware until the water recedes as to the extent of uh, damage to people's property. Um, and clearly in Rochester, a lot of houses still haven't been repaired from the 2022 flood and so a lot of a lot of people have their belongings in sheds and shipping containers and things like that so we're hoping that the damage is kept to a minimum if if hopefully none at all Victorian Premier Jacinta Allen says while a number of communities are waiting to assess the damage, a number of properties appear to have been hit by floodwaters in Goonong and around 10 to 12 properties appear to have been inundated in Seymour. That number will of course be confirmed as the water levels start to recede and it's safe for um, the crews to go in and do the uh, impact assessment on properties, on businesses, on community assets and on the road network and that's when we will get a firmer understanding in the coming days across the region of the, of the damage uh, that has been done as a consequence of these floods. While emergency warnings remain in place, floodwaters peaked in Seymour last night and floodwaters are easing at Yay. Floodwaters in Rochester peaked about two centimetres lower than predicted. Bridget Fitzgerald and Luke Siddham-Dundon with that report. Overseas now and Israel has signalled its military campaign being waged inside Gaza could be on the cusp of a new, more targeted phase that it says could involve fewer troops on the ground and reduced airstrikes. US officials have confirmed they believe the number of Israeli troops in Gaza's north has already reduced by half as the IDF now focuses its operations on central and southern parts of the enclave. But it comes after a suspected Israeli airstrike killed a senior Hezbollah leader inside Lebanon, sparking fresh fears of a further escalation in the conflict. Jacqueline Breen reports. Video published by the Reuters wire service shows tall, dark plumes of smoke behind green hills inside Lebanon, not far from the border with Israel. Israeli airstrikes were reported in the area, and then a statement from Iranian-backed Lebanese militant group Hezbollah. Two of its members were dead after their car was bombed in the village of Majdal Zelm. 
One of them was Wissam Ul-Ta'il, a commando with the elite Radwan force, now the most senior Hezbollah figure killed since the war began. It came after weeks of escalating skirmishes on the border and last week's apparent Israeli airstrike on a building in Beirut that killed a senior Hamas leader. And it came just as US Secretary of State Antony Blinken finished talks in Saudi Arabia and prepared to fly to Israel. On the tarmac, he was asked what the latest strike in Lebanon said about the extent of America's leverage. It's clearly not in the interest of anyone, Israel, Lebanon, Hezbollah for that matter, uh, to, see this, uh, to see this escalate and to see an actual conflict. And the Israelis have been very clear with us that they want to find a diplomatic way forward, a diplomatic way forward that creates the kind of security that allows Israelis to return home. In Gaza, the death toll has reached 23,000, according to Gazan health authorities. More than 120 hostages remain inside the enclave, where Israeli government and military leaders have begun signalling a new, potentially more targeted phase in their campaign. US officials believe the number of troops in northern Gaza have almost halved in the past month, from a peak of 50,000. IDF spokesman Daniel Hagari told the New York Times that operations will focus on the centre and south, where much of Gaza's population remains displaced and desperate for more aid. Among them is Mansour Shuman, a Palestinian-Canadian who's working as a journalist and documenting the war. The Committee to Protect Journalists says 79 media workers, Mansour's colleagues, have been killed inside Gaza covering the conflict. The latest, Al Jazeera's Hamza Dadur and Mustafa Turia were his friends. We were actually, uh, we, we, we had seen each other the, the day before. Uh, we were talking together with his father and with other journalists here about, you know, the latest, what is happening here in Gaza. Um, we were just thinking, OK, we're going to see each other again uh, at the end of the day. The UN has called for an independent and thorough investigation into the deaths of media workers covering the conflict and the protection of those like Mansour Shuman who are still there. Despite all of these challenges, the morale of people like myself, people like Mr. Wa'el and journalists and social media influencers across Gaza are not diminishing. The IDF has repeatedly said it doesn't target journalists. In a statement, it says it is aware two other suspects were killed when it struck a vehicle containing a terrorist posing a threat to Israeli troops. Jacqueline Breen. Finally today, space travellers with an appreciation for the finer arts could be in for a treat one day if they stumble across the payload of the latest space mission to escape the Earth's atmosphere. Music, poetry, drawings and paintings from around the planet are right now on their way to the moon as part of a fledgling effort to establish commercial deliveries to the lunar surface. And as Kathleen Ferguson reports, some Australian artists have been included in the space-going time capsule. Music from around the world. Archived onto a time capsule to be stored on the moon. The works are just some of the 30,000 which will be waiting to be discovered on the lunar surface. And one piece of art, inspired by the movie A Space Odyssey, was created by New South Wales art teacher John Kennedy. The interesting one with this one was that it was a work that dealt with um, different subjects from 
Space Odyssey. Uh, I've actually included that. So there's something kind of providential about having that included in this work. The Wollongong artist's work was put up on social media and then published in a magazine a few years ago. But then he got an interesting update. We got word about this magazine being uploaded. He says finding out a copy of his work would be stored on the moon was hard to comprehend. So it came as a great surprise um, when I heard. It was just unbelievable. It's just an incredible story to see that there's someone out there who's putting together this initiative. His work will be accompanied on its space adventure by the work of Mornington Peninsula artist Vicky Sullivan. Her piece is aptly named Moon Goddess. I painted that and... You know, I've always loved the moon <laughs> and I painted that and then this whole moon thing started happening and it was included in the Lunar Codex and I just thought, oh my goodness, I could have the first moon goddess on the moon. It seemed really, I don't know, appropriate, I thought. The time capsule is being transported to the moon as part of the Peregrine mission, which was launched from Florida yesterday. The lunar lander missions are part of a NASA-supported push to commercialise scientific work on the moon. The space agency is working with several companies to deliver scientific and technological equipment to the lunar surface to do things like explore and gather data. The man behind the Lunar Codex mission to transport the time capsule of art is Canadian physicist and filmmaker Dr Samuel Peralta. What we're doing is we're taking a slice of contemporary life, our literary, our arts, our music, some film, a look, if you like, into our present, which would be their past. And the technology the works are being stored on is set to last quite a while. They call this is a million-year archive. The, the manufacturer basically said, well, it's only warranted to maybe 10,000 years. Well, there is no warranty because we'll all be gone, right? The capsule is expected to arrive on the moon in late February. For artist John Kennedy, the reality of having his art stored in space hasn't quite sunk in yet. You know, kind of think more about it and, and get excited about it. I, I think in that when it actually happens, I think then, um, yeah, because it's, it's really, it's... It is out of this world. Artist John Kennedy ending that report by Kathleen Ferguson. And that's all from the World Today team. I'm Nick Grimm. Thanks for your company.